0: Book of Colossians, the book of Colossians in chapter 3, <clears throat> we are continuing through our exposition of the book of Colossians and we're in chapter 3 in verse 1 to 4 this morning. And, uh, for the sake of context, I'll read from chapter two twenty down to chapter 3, verse 4. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you are still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used. Referring to human preachings, teachings. These have in an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, see it at the right hand of God, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these commands, these teachings, these principles. Not to dwell on things, abo- uh, things below, or ourselves, or one another, but to, but to dwell on things above, to dwell on Christ. And Lord, as we look at this passage, as we look at other parts of your word, as we look at these principles, help us to dwell on things above, to fix our eyes on things above, to set our hearts and minds on things above where Christ is, our Lord and Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So, I'm sure that most of you have seen uh, movies or television shows, where there's a scene in which the characters are crossing over a deep chasm, or they're hanging on the edge of a cliff or a building, and one of the characters says, don't look down. And almost immediately, what happens? The other character looks down at the danger below. And sometimes it's not just the danger that they look down at, but in the movies, and the television shows, there's some valuable object, which one of the characters is reaching out for. And in spite of the danger, while the other character is not only urging them to leave the valuable object, the treasure or whatever, um, but also reminding them that it's not worth the risk of the danger below and to keep their focus on what's most important, their own life, and getting to safety. And our passage for this morning not only reminded me of these scenes in movies and television shows, which we see so often, but also of a couple similar scenes in the Bible which illustrate these principles found in Colossians 3 and verses 1 to 4. In Matthew chapter 14, there is a scene of Jesus walking on the water. Uh, he sends the disciples ahead of them, uh, ahead of him to cross the Sea of Galilee. And uh, he, as the um, passage says, he intends to pass by them. But they see him. They think it's a ghost. And uh, he says, it is I. And in Matthew 14, verses 28 to 31, it says this, And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? This scene has often been used as an illustration for the Christian walk, to keep our eyes fixed on Christ and not to look down at our circumstances, but to focus on God and to walk by faith and not by sight. And, and that's appropriate. Um, that can preach well, and it's, it's true. We are to fix our eyes on Christ as we walk through this world by faith and not to dwell on the dangers around us, our circumstances, but to understand that God is in our circumstances. There's another scene in the Bible which illustrates this principle of maintaining our focus on God, and the warning in that scene wasn't, don't look down, but don't look back. In Genesis 19, we see um, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and the saving of Lot and his family by the angels, and they warn them not to look back. But in In verse 26 of chapter 19, it says this, but Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. In explaining and providing instructions concerning the tribulation and the rapture in Luke 17, Jesus gives the warning, remember Lot's wife. We are not to look back at the things of this world. We are not to dwell on the trappings of this world. And earlier in Luke's gospel, Jesus gives us a warning to would-be followers concerning the cost of discipleship when he says in Luke chapter 9, verse 62, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. We are to keep our eyes up and forward, focused on Christ, striving forward. And the Apostle Paul even echoed that statement by Jesus when he said in Philippians chapter 3, verse 13, One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. From those scenes, from those illustrations, there's a principle. There's things to learn. That where we look and the objects of our focus and desires are of utmost importance in the Christian life. And this is what the Apostle Paul aims to teach the Colossians in this passage. Because the church at Colossae was in a sense being told by all the false teachers and even sincere but probably misguided believers to look back at keeping the Old Testament law to be made righteous to look at human traditions and man-made regulations to be holy, to look at angels, spirits, and mystical experiences to be truly spiritual. And so Paul spends the first two chapters of this book exposing these errors by explaining and extolling the greatness of the gospel and the glories of Jesus Christ and what he has done in saving sinners and justifying them by his life. Death and resurrection. And now the Apostle Paul in this book, in this letter, shifts his message in chapter 3 and the rest of the book to explain to the Colossians how they are to live in light of such truths, how they are to be holy, how they are to be sanctified as they are to look forward to the day in which they will be glorified in the presence of their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In this passage, the Apostle Paul provides the Colossians with two mandates. And two motivations for biblical sanctification. Two divine instructions and two divine incentives for pursuing true holiness. So we have first the divine mandates for true holiness in verses 1 to 2. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. And right away, there is this this clause, if then. It's a prerequisite for the divine mandates that this can only be received, these instructions, these mandates for true holiness can only be received and followed by those who have been raised with Christ, by those who have been born again. As Paul lays out the gospel in the first two chapters, the greatness of the gospel, the greatness of this salvation in Jesus Christ alone. But for those who have been raised with Christ, we are not to look back, we are not to look down, we are to seek the things that are above. And quite literally this could be translated keep on seeking or keep seeking as some English translations say. And why? Why are we to seek the things that are above? Why are we to keep on seeking? Why are we to look up? Because that's where Christ is. That's where Jesus Christ is, and and Jesus Christ is everything. He's everything in the Christian life, and that's why we're called Christians, because in a sense, um, originally that term meant little Christ. We're to be like Christ. In his commentary, Peter Peter O'Brien writes this concerning this passage. He says, Their interests are to be focused on Christ. Their minds, aims, ambitions, in fact, their whole outlook, are to be centered on that heavenly realm where He rules and where their lives truly belong. A continuous, ongoing effort is required. Literally keep on setting your minds and your hearts. For such a focus does not come automatically. The godly man or woman will regularly assess whether their ambitions and lifestyle are consistent with the ultimate goal to which God has called them, i.e. heaven itself, where he rules. This realm above is to be sought diligently, and in contrast to any false seeking of heavenly experiences by the promoters of the Colossian philosophy. For this is where Christ is, seated as king in the place of honor. We so easily dwell upon ourselves and dwell upon others and compare ourselves to others and um, rank ourselves and um, more often than not we think of ourselves more than anything else. But we're to seek Christ, we're to dwell on Him, we're to look to Him. But just in that command, seek the things above. It's it somewhat seems nebulous and and spiritual. And it is spiritual, but it's also specific because it talks about Christ and we are to seek Him and all that He is. But it raises the question, how exactly? How exactly are we to seek Christ? And first and foremost, by not seeking the things below, by not seeking the things of the nations, but of the kingdom, because this is Right here, he, he kind of Paul kind of qualifies this statement by saying seated at the right hand of God. Speaking of Christ's royal um, position, his kingly position, his kingly office as king over the earth and the universe. Sitting at the right hand of the Father. as ruler, and also that he will one day return to rule and reign. Jesus gives us a little bit uh, um, clearer picture of what we are to seek in his sermon on the mountain in Luke chapter 12. And he tells his disciples in Luke chapter 12 and verse 29, he says this. He says, and do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be wearied. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there Will your heart be also? Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning, and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. What Jesus is saying, we are not to be like the nations, we are not to be like the unbelievers, and all, um, we are not to have the same values as they do. Now, we are similar. We live in this world. We eat and we drink and we need houses to live in. We um, need to work and we need to do uh, many things that just normal human beings need to do. But our values aren't to be precisely the same. We're not to worry about all the trappings of this world, about our provisions, because God provides for us. He gives us everything we need. And at the same time, some may take this command to sell your possessions and give to the needy as, as um, a command to, that we have to liquidate everything we have and we've got to um, live as an ascetic. And, and that's not true because Paul refutes this um, idea in Colossians 2 and there's other passages. That, but it does mean that we're not to hold on to the things of this world with tightly closed fists. We are to hold our gifts and our blessings with an open hand, and we are to use them for the advancement of the kingdom. And if we focus on the kingdom, if we focus on doing what God wants us to do, we will see, as this verse says, that all things will be added to us. We will not lack anything. And this this gets easier and easier the older you get, because you see the ways in which God has provided for you. The younger you are, the more prone you are to anxiety and worry and fear because you're trying to figure out your way in life. But providence is always seen looking backwards. Yet we're called to look forward and walk by faith and trust in God and then he will work it out. Kent Hughes, in his commentary, he writes this concerning this command. He says, the things that are above are not material, but rather have to do with Christ's sovereign reign over the universe as he fills the universe with his power. They include his character, his presence, his heavenly joys. We are not to be seeking heavenly geography, but the one who dwells there. Furthermore, the verb seek is in the present imperative, which means a continuous, ongoing effort is required. There's so many... um, spiritualized ideas about heaven, which come from different uh, religions and ideologies and, and not necessarily the Bible. And, and yet, the Bible only tells us a little bit about heaven. And so we're prone to imagine. We're prone to wonder. Which isn't necessarily wrong, but we must filter our thoughts and our ideas through the scriptures. Because we don't know. As Jesus told Nicodemus, no one has ascended to heaven and come back. But the son of man who descended. He's saying, I, I'll tell you what it's like. We know that Jesus is there. We know from the scriptures what Jesus is like. We know his words. We know his character. We know his works. We know his promises that he will return and rule and reign in righteousness, and so those are the things we dwell on. We dwell on those things which Scripture specifically tells us about and explains about Christ. Those are the things that we are to seek to understand all the attributes of God, all the attributes of Jesus Christ, all of his promises, his character, what we will be like. And we're not only to seek the things that are above, but verse 2, we are to set our minds on the things that are above. And It almost seems redundant, but not necessarily. This is, this is um, strengthening that principle, strengthening that argument, not just seeking, but setting. Not just um, looking, but dwelling upon. It. it emphasizes it even more. But then also we see see a positive command in verse verse 2, and then we see the negative. It it kind of clarifies it a bit more, what we are to fix our minds on, what we are to seek, what we are to dwell upon. The positive and the negative commands, the what. Just as Jesus said in Matthew 6, Another um, passage, we have these two parallel passages concerning the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, or actually Matthew 5 through 7 and and Luke 12. In Matthew 6, verse 19, he says this to his disciples. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in steal." For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. And we can take this command about laying up for ourselves treasures in heaven. And we think primarily in terms of money, in terms of possessions. Most of us could think in terms of giving giving to the church, giving to missions, giving to people who are needy. But it's not just um, our possessions and our money. It's our time. It's our ability. It's our talents. It's the whole of our lives that we are to live for the things above and not the things below. We are to understand and remind ourselves often that this world is passing away, and the lusts of it, that this world is temporary, that we are temporary, but heaven is eternal. The kingdom of God is eternal. And so there's, in a sense, more of uh, uh, an investment strategy. And we are to invest in the kingdom of heaven and not the kingdom of um, this world. As Jesus says later, but seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. As long as we are doing His will and seeking the kingdom and and seeking what He desires, then we'll not lack the things we need to live in this world. We need to set set our minds on the things of God. And and even Jesus even had to uh, rebuke His disciples for this Peter when He Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him concerning um, his his death and his sacrifice. And he said, um, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And there's many instances in this life, many circumstances in which We can um, set our minds on the things of man. Set our minds on the things of this world. Go um, about our lives and our plans for our lives as any other unbeliever. And there's no difference. But we are to set our mind on the things of God. And why? Why are we to set our minds on the things of God? Because In this passage, the whole context of this passage in this chapter has to do with holiness, has to do with sanctification, has to do with what it means to be spiritual. And so Paul tells the Colossians to set their minds on things above, to seek the things above, because sanctification begins with the mind. It begins in the mind. The battle for holiness begins in the mind. That's why Paul tells the Romans in Romans chapter 12, after he goes through the first 11 chapters of Romans, explaining um, the gospel and all its implications and applications, and and, um, the, the detailed plan of God to redeem sinners, then he shifts to a more specific application of Christian living. In Romans chapter 12, and verse 1, he says this, I appeal to you therefore, brothers... By the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And he says this, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And we are to think differently. We're to constantly be renewing our minds, and part of that is by seeking the things above and not the things below. This is the primary way in which we are made holy, in which we are conformed into the image of Christ, in which we are made Christ-like, that we think those thoughts which are pleasing to God, which are pleasing to Christ, which honor Christ, and quite literally, we think of Christ always. There's the, the Colossians and, and, and many of us, and we talked about this last week. Um, they're tempted to make rules and follow lists and regulations, and, and that's not entirely false because there's some wisdom in that. But if that's if that's the only um, if that's the extent of our sanctification or our plan to be holy, then we will ultimately fail because as um, Paul said in 2.23, he said, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. All the external rules and regulations and, and um, uh, patterns of discipline they may have some benefit, but ultimately they will not stop the indulgence of the flesh. Holiness is an inside job. It starts on the inside, then it works its way outward. And it starts with the mind. This is why Paul told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter three in verse 17 to 18, "This is probably one of the premier verses concerning sanctification. He says this, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. What he's saying is, as we behold the glory of Jesus Christ, as we look up to Jesus Christ, as we dwell upon the things above, as we worship Him, we are being transformed into his image. We will be made um, like what we dwell upon. It kind of go, goes back to those, those principles. I, I'm, I'm sure you, you may have heard of these principles, um, especially in sports. This is big in sports of uh, visualizing, visualizing the goal, visualizing the victory. And it has a a profound effect on athletes. The same principle is used in the business world. And there is, in a sense, this principle here that we are to focus on the goal, and the goal is Christ, Christ Christ-likeness. And in focusing on Him and visualizing Him and dwelling on, on Him according to what Scripture says, then we will, in a sense, be made like Him. We will be conformed to Him. I like what Octavius Winslow wrote on this passage in his devotional Morning Thoughts. He says this, To win heaven, the mind must become heavenly. And to be heavenly, it must habituate itself to heavenly things and heavenly pursuits. It is a law of our mental constitution that the mind assimilates in its tone and habits of thought with the subject which most engrosses its study. Hence it is that we sometimes become men of one idea, Now, the contemplation of divine and spiritual themes has a powerful tendency to spiritualize and sanctify the mind. It seems impossible to breathe a heavenly atmosphere and not be heavenly, to study holy things and not be holy, to admire the image of Christ and not resemble Christ, to have frequent communion with Jesus upon the throne and not catch some stray beam of His glory. Apart from Christ, nothing is really pleasant and satisfying To the heavenly mind. And so how are we to do this? We are to do it by meditating on the person and works of Christ. And believing in his work. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. We meditate on all that he has done. All that he has said. All that he is. His attributes. His character. His compassion. His grace. How he interacted with people, how he um, proclaimed the gospel, how he um, uh, rebuked the religious leaders. As Paul says to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 2, he says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And then he says this concerning our sanctification. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Dwelling on things above, dwelling on Christ, does not mean that we stop working on holiness, and, and sanctification. It does not mean that we stop striving to put off those sins and those sinful habits and, and putting on righteousness and holy habits. It does not mean that, but it does mean that our goal is on Christ and Christ, Christ's likeness, and as we dwell on Him and who He is and what He has done, even in this passage in Philippians 2, is it's almost as if we are to do exactly like He had done, to humble ourselves, to be a servant to follow Him. And as we follow Him, we dwell upon Him and we do what He did. As much as we are able to, we, we can't do miracles, we can't um, give ourselves a sacrifice for other sinners, but we can, in a sense, live righteously as He lived righteously. Michael Riccardi, he comments on these principles in his book, Uh, Sanctification, the Christian's Pursuit of God, Given Holiness, which I highly recommend. It's a small book, um, Sanctification, by Michael Riccardi. And he says this, The truly holy person does not merely do what God commands, though he certainly does that. The holy person loves what God loves and then acts in keeping with that renewed heart. As God works in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure, he inclines our hearts to treasure the glory of Christ. And as we behold Him with the eyes of our heart, our minds and our affections are renewed so that we love Him more and love sin less. We are transformed from the inside out. See, the the fight of holiness is a battle that is won first in the mind. And it is a battle. And it starts in our mind because our minds wander our minds dwell upon ourselves and we, we can, all day long, we're in a conversation with ourselves in a sense, thinking what we want, what we desire, our plans, our motives, our schedule, our interactions with others. And, and, and even um, as we view the world and we view others and, and sometimes even um, our service to one another, we view it from the perspective of self. We're selfish. We're selfish. And our sanctification starts with dying to self, and that dying to self starts in the mind. And it is a battle. It is a battle. It is a battle that has to be fought by faith because we can get discouraged. We fail often. We stumble. We fall. We're tempted. We're weak. We need to trust that God who has begun a good work in, it, will, in us will bring it to completion. This is best seen in um, the book of Hebrews. Um, this letter to the Hebrews was written to um, Jewish background believers who were, um, because of, of fierce persecution, were being tempted to turn back to Judaism. They were being tempted to turn away from Christ because of the cost of discipleship. And so the author to the letter of Hebrews, he writes this letter to encourage them to stand fast, to stand firm in the faith. He encourages them by um, explaining the greatness of Christ's sacrifice, the greatness of Christ's person, what he has done, the glories of Jesus Christ. And then he gets to chapter 11, the, the roll call of faith. And he says this in 11 Uh, chapter 11, verse 6, And without faith it is impossible to please Him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. And we are not just to seek Him for salvation, but we are to continually seek Him for sanctification. And we are to seek Him by faith because the Christian life gets hard. And for most of us, in our context, it's, It's relatively easy. But when we think of um, ourselves and our our sinful um, uh, inclinations and tendencies and thoughts, we see the battle on the inside. We must strive forward by faith. Author to Hebrews, he goes on in, in chapter 11, verse 24, and he gives all these examples of the heroes of the faith that we are to emulate. And not completely because certainly we see that list and we we can look back in the Old Testament and we can see their failures and their flaws and their sins. But yet they're still called to be heroes of the faith. And one such hero, Moses, he says this, By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater of greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt for he was looking to the reward. This is what... Moses had the whole world at his fingertips. He he, he could have been somebody and he was somebody. He had all the pleasures of this world at his fingertips in in, um, his day and age. And he decided to... Um, stick to his heritage, to um, remain loyal to his people and loyal to God. And so because of that, he wandered in the wilderness as a shepherd for 40 years, and then he led God's people in all the accounts and all the trials that came with that because he was looking forward to the reward. He was looking forward to what lay ahead of him. He was looking forward to being with God. Even as he was so disgruntled and angry on the mountain, he said to God, show me your glory. That was his goal. That was what he was striving for. And that's what we are to strive for. That's what we are to live for. The glory of God. As a writer to the Hebrews, he says in chapter 12, And it's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is what Paul is talking about when he tells us to seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. We are to look to Him, the founder and perfecter of our faith. We are to live as He lived in a sense. We are to look forward, to strive, looking forward to the joy that is set before us in heaven where He is. And here's the whole point of seeking the things that are above and setting our minds on the things of that are above: is that first holiness begins on the inside, and sanctification starts with the mind and the heart. It starts with our desires and our focus, what we seek after, what we set our minds on, what we really want, because we are made to worship. It's the primary design and function of a human being. So the question is not, will we worship, or are we worshiping, but what are we worshiping? So that's what God created us to do. That's the function of a human being. And, and it helps to understand the, the um, literal meaning of the Old English term for worship, where we get that term because it was um, pronounced worth-skip, and then worship And what it means is to ascribe value, to value something, to ascribe value to something. And we were created to ascribe value to God, to see God as more valuable than all things in this world. Because He is the most valuable thing. He is the most glorious thing. He is the greatest thing. Logically, He must be. Because how can any created thing be greater than the Creator? It can't. And we are created to ascribe value. And as we ascribe value, we, we go through our day making judgments, focusing on things, desiring things, thinking about things. And in doing that, we are ascribing value to those things. What should I spend my time on? What should I spend my money on? What should I um, do? What do I want to do? And we're here, we're, we come here to worship God. But sincerely, our, our hearts aren't always set upon God. They're set upon ourselves. And there is a sense that as we ascribe value, as we worship, we're looking for those things which will, um, are valuable to us, that we think are valuable, and which will, will bring us joy, will bring us pleasure. And there's a sense that we sin because sin offers temporary pleasure. It offers joy. Solomon, in his book, as he, King Solomon, you know, the wisest man who ever lived apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, um, he comes to the end of his life and he looks back on his life and he contemplates his life and he writes the, this book of Ecclesiastes. And it starts off with vanity of vanities, all is vanity, weightless, useless. And he says in chapter 2, you know, because he got to the point where he had everything, like Moses. He had everything at his fingertips. He had, he had money, fame, fortune, all the pleasures of this world, um, power, clout. And because he was the wisest man in, in the world, he, he has this sense of, well, what now? What now? All of this is vanity of vanities. And so he tests himself. He says in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, he says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. It didn't fulfill him. He he was, in in a sense, looking, searching for fulfillment, searching for meaning, searching for joy, searching for lasting pleasure. And he goes in all these different categories of sin and worldly enjoyment, some of them um, uh, legitimate, some of them sinful. And, he, and at the end, he says vanity of vanities, striving after the wind. But there is a sense that um, as a worshiper, he's looking for that joy, that fulfillment, that pleasure, and, and sin offers it. it, it offers that temporary pleasure, that temporary joy, but it is temporary. Yet, we wouldn't sin if there was no promise of joy or pleasure. One pastor said this concerning this passage. He said, you can't turn off the joy switch. In the moment of temptation and sin, you actually believe that the sin will bring you greater joy than obedience to Christ. Otherwise, you would not do it. You think about that. Logically, you would not sin if you did not think that there was some sort of pleasure or joy in that sin. In the moment of choosing that temptation, that sin, you believe it's going to fulfill you. And then it fails, and you feel guilty, and you repent, or you should, and turn back to God. But nonetheless, you believe that there's joy to be had there. Otherwise, you would not do it. As John Piper has said, no one sins out of duty. No one goes about, I I must commit this sin. No, you actually believe that there is some sort of fulfillment in that sin, whatever it may be. Substance abuse or lying or gossip or slander or um, hatred or um, stealing. Whatever, name the sin in the moment of the temptation and sin, you actually, in your heart, in your mind, you might not say this, but you actually believe there's some sort of pleasure or joy in that sin. Otherwise, you would not do it. And so, the, the, the fight for holiness is this. You and I, and every other sinner, we need a superior pleasure. We need a superior joy. We need a greater joy than anything this world could offer. We need true and everlasting fulfillment which is only found in the things above. It's only found in Jesus Christ. Nothing in this world can fulfill us. Nothing can give us lasting joy but Christ. And so this is is why holiness begins in the mind and the heart. Because we need to seek that superior joy, that superior pleasure. We need to believe that Christ is greater than anything this world can ever offer. And if we believe that, we will seek him. And then when we're tempted by the lesser things of this world, we'll be able, by faith, to fight that temptation and say, no, you will not fulfill me. As much as you promise joy, it's short-lived. Christ is the greatest joy, and following him is the greatest joy. As the author of Hebrews, he, he ends, he, he says, For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come, when all things will be made right, when all things are good, when there is no sin, there's no temptation, there's no guilt, there's no shame. There's Christ and the glory of God. And so we have seen the divine mandates for true holiness in seeking and setting our minds on things above, and now we see the divine motives for true holiness in verses 3 to 4. verses 3 to 4, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. We have the commands, the mandates to seek those things which are above, to set our minds on the things above, and now we have the motives to do it. The divine motives for true holiness, which start with, first and foremost, that we have died. We have died with Christ, and our life is hidden with Christ in God. If you are in Christ, you are united with Him. There's union with Him. When He died, you died. When He was resurrected, you were raised up as well, spiritually speaking. And it's also looking forward to what will happen at your death. Paul talks about this principle of union with Christ and how, how it motivates us and drives us to fight the sin in our life. He, he talks about this and lays it out in detail in Romans chapter 6 where he says this in Romans chapter 6 and verse 5, he says this, For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And he's saying a couple things here. Not just that, spiritually speaking, that we are united with Christ in his death as... um, Many theologians and pastors call it the great exchange. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made Him who knew no sin to become sin uh, on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That there was this exchange where He took our sin on the cross. He bore the punishment for us, and in bearing that punishment, we were credited with His righteous life. His righteous life was imputed to us, accounted to us, credited to us, that we were considered righteous, And we were united with Him in His death, burial, and resurrection. But second, and what He's trying to say is that sin no longer has complete power over you. We were once slaves to sin, but in Christ we are no longer enslaved to sin. We are no longer slaves to sin. And here's the point. You can be holy. It doesn't mean that you'll completely be perfect in this life, or you'll completely um, be sinless. But it does mean that you don't have to sin. You're not enslaved to sin. That holiness is possible. It's possible. So, sometimes we, and, and even for um, you know, pastors and leaders in the church, we can um, read these, um, these qualifications for pastors and deacons and leaders in the church in in, uh, 1 Timothy 3 or Titus 1. And we see these high calling, these high standards. And if we look at them, um, you know, at face value, we can say, well, man. Externally, I could see how somebody could meet those standards. But internally, at the heart level, the desire level, you know, sometimes you just, I don't know. You know, because we all stumble and fail. But they're written there. So somebody must be able to achieve them. And it's not perfection, but holiness is possible. And all the standards for Christian living, living, they're possible. All throughout the New Testament, it's possible. It's possible to be holy. And sometimes we just, that's where our struggle with sin really, we really start gaining traction, so to speak, and we stop spinning our wheels is when we believe that holiness is possible and that we'll, we'll not always struggle with this one life-dominating sin. We may be tempted, but holiness is possible. We can gain victory over sin. This is why Charles Wesley wrote in his hymn, which he, on a side note, had a different view of holiness, but nonetheless, um, sometimes his hymns um, contradicted... Uh, his theology, because his hymns seemed to have better theology than him and his brother John. <laughs> but nonetheless, he writes this, and oh for a thousand tongues to sing this line, he breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. This is what he was getting at Romans chapter 6, that Jesus Christ breaks the power of canceled sin. He canceled the sin, he paid the sin debt, so that we are no longer um, liable to it. We no longer have to pay the punishment for it. But he also breaks the power of it. That we're no longer enslaved to it. We're, we're free to be holy. This heavenly reality. This truth. John says this as well in 1 John 2.28 Now little children abide in him so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. As we abide in Him, as, as even Jesus said, to abide in me and, and I in you, and you will bear much fruit. We abide in Him and we bear fruit, and with that comes the confidence so that when He comes, we're looking forward to Him. We're living in light of His coming because we will be glorified in Him. John says later in his epistle, 1 John, he says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. This is the motivation, and then he goes on to say, And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. We have this motivation of glory and because the, we have the motivation of glory, we um, carry out the mandates of holiness to seek Him, to love Him, to be like Him. Dr. Stuart Scott, in his book, Killing Sin Habits, yeah, which I also recommend, it's a small book, Stuart Scott, Killing Sin Habits. He writes this, commenting on 1 John 3 and verses 2 to 3. He says this having an eternal perspective, is both necessary and purifying. This aspect of the gospel, our salvation is crucial for your, you daily. Remembering that at any moment Christ may return and hoping in the rest and joy of Christ in heaven can affect your choices and make a great difference in mortifying your sin. And We are to live in light of his return and that he can return at any point. You know, oftentimes, and, and you, can, you, you see this, um, many churches, ministries, pastors will um, dwell too much on end times prophecy. And, and certainly, things are shaking up in our world that, you know, many of us can look at our world and be like, man, it's, it's got to be soon. Like, there's things that are, are, seem to be lining up, but we're not to set dates. And, and the truth of the matter is, he can come back tomorrow. And for some of us, that can be a scary thought because we have plans. (laughs) And it's silly, but it's true. We think too much of our plans than the return of Christ. You know, and we should live as if, you know, and even even good plans, even plans and goals for ministry. You know, to... to, um, you know, for some churches, they're in the midst of a building campaign. You know, and to say, you know, Lord, could you hold off just a bit while we, you know, build this building and then we can really advance this ministry? Like, they wouldn't say that. No one would say that. But sometimes we live our lives as if we believe that, as if we think. You know, would that the Lord came back today or tomorrow? We should live like that, and that has a purifying effect on us. It causes us to sit up straight in our chairs to you know, walk a little straighter to, because He's coming. And yes, it may be a thousand years from now, but it very well may be tomorrow. And we are to live as if it's tomorrow and hope as if it's tomorrow and pray as if it's tomorrow. Lord, come quickly. Jesus Himself, He, he in, in a sense gave this This warning and yet this hope. At the end of the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 25, he says this, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on the left. And then further on, he he says, Then the king will... The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then later on he says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you accursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And in this passage, in this section of the gospel, he talks about the lifestyle of, of you know, the Christians, of you know, the holy living That is characteristic or should be characteristic of us. But that He is coming. And that should motivate us to live holy. To focus on Him. To dwell upon Him. To pray to Him. And yet we see this command in Colossians 3 to seek the things above. To set our minds on the things above. Because that's where Christ is. We also see it throughout the New Testament in different epistles, but this command to seek the things above, it's, it's not new. It's all throughout the, the Old Testament. It's in the, the prophets. We're always to seek God. We're always to look to God. We're always to hope in God. We are to worship God. It's what we were created for. In Isaiah, he says this, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way and the unrighteous man His thoughts. Let Him return to the Lord that He may have compassion on Him and to our God, for He will abundantly pardon. And there may be some of us in here who we aren't seeking the Lord because you've never sought the Lord. You've never treasured Him. You live for yourself. You're all about yourself. And in a sense, you're dead in your transgressions and sins. You have yet to come to the Lord. You have yet to seek Him. And the command is to seek Him while He may be found, to call upon Him while He is near, and then to continue to seek Him. Always seek Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And the Scripture says everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. So if you do not seek Him, if you do not even think about Him, if you do not even desire Him or desire anything in the Scriptures, you have to ask yourself, have I ever sought Him? And why not? Seek Him while He may be found. Because there will come a day when He comes and He separates the sheep from the goats. And when that day comes, you want to be found in Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You sent Jesus to seek and to save those who are lost. To seek us. And as you have sought after us, you command us to seek you. Nothing in this world can fulfill us or give us joy. And yet we are tempted daily, hourly, to seek the things of this world. That um, so many trivial things promise us joy and fulfillment. And they leave us empty. They're broken cisterns which cannot hold any water. So Lord, help us to seek you, to remember you, to remember your words, to treasure you. Because you are the greatest treasure. You are the greatest thing. You are the most glorious thing there is. You are and you reign. We thank you and we praise you. Lord, help us this week to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. In Christ's name we pray, amen.